Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Hugo Ever, the podcast documenting, discussing, and deciding the very best of the winners of the illustrious Hugo Awards. My name is Sam Allen Johnson, along with my co-host, as always, Jack Alexander. Hey, Sam, and hello, audience. I hope you guys are having a great day, because we've got a great story to tell you all about. Yes, this is our very exciting first episode of the podcast, and we have an amazing short story. But if you're not sure what we're doing here on the show or the story we're discussing, we have a great place for you to start, and that is our episode zero. Episode zero, it's a bit longer. We explain our backgrounds, our kind of how we got into fantasy, and what the premise of the show is. So if you want that sort of background, that sort of backstory, you can get it. But if you're a courageous, open-hearted, open-minded sort of person, we'll set it all up as we go along, and you'll follow with us as we talk about today's story. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, that's what I like. So today, Jack and I will be discussing the 2019 winner of the Hugo short story, and this is A Witch's Guide to Escape, a Practical Compendium of Portal Fantasies by Alex E. Haro, an absolutely fantastic story that we will get to in just a moment, because Jack, I'd like to ask you, checking in, what are you up to these days? What's going on in your life? Thanks for checking in with me, Sam. I actually recently had a fun uh, little excursion with my brother to a culinary institute sort of place that they teach uh, culinary schools and also have these recreational classes. So we had a morning class on making sushi. So like how to prepare, how to sort of cut up, prepare sushi grade uh, fish, how to sort of slice properly, how to make those rolls. And also the other sort of etiquette and stuff about that. It's just three-hour course, super fun. And you, of course, you get to eat all the stuff you make, which was a pleasure of mine. The most important question. This is true. It was very delicious. Have you ever had sushi before, Sam? I have, in fact. I think, you know, we've even had sushi together on occasion. That's incredible. What, let, me, let me check in with you, though. What have you been up to? What's been bringing you joy? Um, not too much these days here in Massachusetts. Patriots Day was a bit ago, and it was a fantastic reason to get outside and see the Boston Marathon going by. I'm fortunate enough to live in a place where it was just two blocks down the street and just see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of runners coming by in a race that's pretty famous all throughout the world, which is cool to see, like I said, going right by my house and The crowds are always energetic and music's playing and people are holding up signs. So even if the weather wasn't exactly the most agreeable that day, it was so cool to feel the excitement of the helicopters flying over and all the cameras everywhere. Lots of fun. And it's a nice little special day we get in Massachusetts, unlike the rest of the nation. We are also big readers, of course, for many books besides Hugo Award-winning short stories. So what have you been reading lately? Mm. I just finished yesterday uh, the New Directions Anthology of Classical Chinese Poetry. Because something about me, I'm usually reading about three books at once. I usually read a a book of fiction, a book of nonfiction, a book of poetry at any given time. But I just finished this volume of poetry by edited by Elliot Weinberger. It's interesting because it combines excerpts from different books of translation by multiple different uh, poets like Gary Snyder, William Carlos Williams, Kenneth Rexford, like a bunch of these guys who have translated these. And you even have sometimes two or three or four translations of the same poem. And it's this really interesting overview, both of 
the history of Chinese poetry from the earliest AD years to about the year 1200, and also an overview of the translation of Chinese poetry and how it's evolved over the past hundred years into English. So it's a really, really fun, fun story to read. Some of the poems I really, really loved, but it was just interesting to see that use of language and its evolution over time. What about you, Sam? What have you checked out recently? So I just wrapped up a writer at war, which is the World War II writings of a Soviet journalist, Vasily Grossman. During the war, he was a journalist for the Red Army newspaper. And this was all of both his article writings, but also various essays and journal entries from his time embedded in the Red Army on the Eastern Front. And it is every bit as brutal as you can expect. Um, I should also say this was edited and put together by Anthony Beaver, who did an amazing job of detailing everything that was um, happening and locating and researching all of these writings, including many of which I believe like were censored during the Stalinist era. But here we get to see all of his real thoughts on the battles and the citizens going around him. Of course, the climax is he was deeply embedded in with the army during Stalingrad and then following them all the way to Berlin and really getting a sense of how both he and the world around him is just dealing with all of this death and destruction and every horrible thing you can imagine. Really appreciate because it also had the entirety of his essay, The Hell Called Treblinka, which is when he came across the Treblinka concentration camp, which is, yeah. So anyone who's interested at all in World War II from a USSR perspective on the Eastern Front, definitely worth checking out. Amazing bit of reading. It's really pushing me to check out his fiction book, Life and Fate, which is basically described as war and peace, but set in Stalingrad. And that's all you need to say to grab my attention. So fantastic read. So now we're going to move on from our look talking about us, talking about the Hugo Awards. Um, before we start talking about the actual short story, we're going to give you a bit of context looking at this year's other Hugo winners. Because if you weren't here for episode zero, we pick the years at random. We use a random gen number generator to kind of send us one direction or another towards what our chosen story is. So we don't decide what year we're doing. This year, our pick was 2019. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the other uh, winners before we talk about the short story specifically. Best novel in 2019 was won by The Calculating Stars, a novel by Mary Robinette Kowal. I believe that's the first in her Lady Astronaut series of novels, uh, published by Tor Books. Uh, the best novella was uh, Artificial Condition by Martha Wells, which is part of her Murderbot series, published by Tor.com. That one I actually have read, and I'm able to say it's quite good. The funny thing about that specifically, though, is that that's the second in her series, and third and fourth were all eligible and were all nominated for the Hugo, but she kind of um, took all but one out of the running, which is, you know, good thing she gave the others a sporting chance, because it would be, it's a great series, but it would be kind of sad if three out of five nominations were just from one series. Sounds like she's got to use those murder bots to uh, take out the rest of the competition. Mur okay. Murderbot? The whole point of Murderbot is that he chooses that he doesn't want to have to kill people anymore, you know? Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. We shouldn't, we shouldn't make sentient beings do murders if they don't want to. That's my... That's what we have Agent 47 for. That's true. Is he really a sentient being, though? Okay. Best Novelette. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again by Zen Cho. 
uh, which is from the Barnes & Noble Sci-Fi and Fantasy blog, which I did not know existed, that blog, until now. So I should check that out, I'll be honest. Best series is Wayfarers by Becky Chambers, which is her series that starts with Long Way from a Small Distant Planet, I think. And then that is our other winners. But what about the short story? Who were our runners-up? Oh, I'm sorry, one more thing. This is the year that Archive of Our Own won the best related work. So technically... If you have written some fanfic on AO3, you are a Hugo Award-winning author. Congratulations. And I have read some amazing stories on AO3, so a well-deserved award for a very important website for, I'm sure, many people listening to this podcast. So, A Witch's Guide was able to beat out the likes of The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington by P. DeJulie Clark in Fireside Magazine. The Rose McGregor Drinking and Admiration Society by T. Kingfisher in Uncanny Magazine. S.T.E.T. by Sarah Gailey, again in Fireside Magazine. The Court Magician by Sarah Pinsker in Lightspeed. And The Tale of the Three Beautiful Raptor Sisters and the Prince Who Was Made of Meat by Brooke Bolander in Uncanny Magazine. All of those have fantastic titles, but I feel like they're also just such short story titles the last one you wouldn't really see in a novel, but something about it just screams short story. I've not read any of these, but I feel like they are all worth checking out. In 2019, the last normal year for many of us. Mm-hmm. But we ain't talking about those, though. Nope. We are talking about this fantastic story ahead of us today. So, Jack, can you give us an idea of Miss Harrow and some of her writings? So, the background from Apex Magazine that I'll read, which is where this was published. Uh, a former academic and adjunct, Alex E. Harrow is now a full-time writer living in Kentucky with her husband and their semi-feral kids. She is the author of Hugo Award-winning short fiction, and her debut novel, The Ten Thousand Doors of January, was a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. Uh, specifically, she was actually an adjunct professor of African and African-American history at Eastern Kentucky University before becoming a full-time writer. Uh, this is her only award-winning short story, but she was nominated for her longer fiction, specifically The Ten Thousand Doors of January and Once and Future Witches. Neither of those won, but they were nominated for both. Now that we've introduced her and we've talked about the background, we're going to go to a brief commercial break and then loop back in to talk about the story itself. See you in a sec. So... This story, A Witch's Guide to Escape, A Practical Compendium of Portal Fantasies, was a really excellent story to start on. To go over what this is about, this is a story about a witch who works as a public or school librarian, I'm not sure which, possibly both, who is noticing that there is a boy in her library who is going around and noticing a lot of books in the science fiction and fantasy sections, and she is kind of subtly pushing a different science fiction and fantasy books from different eras and authors his way to give him an escape from his life that, as we go throughout the story, we realize is not in the best of places. And as his situation deteriorates, we get a tiny bit of backstory as to why this witch working as a librarian feels so connected to him and sympathizes with his situation. And at the end, she decides to break the witch's code by giving him a book from the witch's library that is not really supposed to be seen by anyone, which is the title book, A Witch's Guide to Escape, A Practical Compendium, Portal Fantasies, which the boy uses 
to escape quite literally into his stories. This was a really great read about escapism, the importance of public libraries and the role librarians play in our lives, and just an amazing short story to start a podcast about stories on. It was a banger. Jack, what did you think? Sam, I love this story. I I'm a bit of a stoic person. I'm a bit of a, a bit of a standoffish person emotionally. I've been told that my heart is behind glass. Uh, ex-boyfriend once told me. But you know, I read this story in the middle of a hotel lobby and I fucking cried. Oh, I can't cuss, can I? I We don't have any advertisers yet. You can say whatever you want. I fucking cried in the middle of that. There you go. Put crowded. Some, put some heart behind crowded it. Crowded fucking uh, hotel lobby. And like it got me. It got me really emotionally because this story is about trying to help someone who is fading, is almost beyond your reach, and mm. about sort of the way we use stories to save ourselves from where we are. And I don't know, it, it really hit me hard. It really made me emotional. As personal backstory, I'm actually a public school teacher, and I spend most of my day working with kids like the one in the story. And it, it just got me emotional. But um, I, I loved it. Yeah, it's amazing that by coincidence this is the first story we read because I thought it was such a fantastic story about the power that books can bring and how it has a lot to say about why, why are we so interested in these stories of worlds that we ourselves will never be able to a part of it got me a lot thinking about escapism as well and how humanity thinks as that and just all the different stories that we that pushes it our way one of the things that i thought was really unique and that i loved how it was formatted was the story is broken up by the titles and author of the books that the librarian is pushing towards the boy so you'll see at the beginning it mentions the runaway prince by jc george and its publication year and everything. Later on, as time passed, we see The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it's a really cool method of just breaking up the story into different pieces and also getting to see the types of stories that the boy is getting to read along the way and recognize a few of them as well. It's really effective, honestly, that, that specific dynamic, because each it the way this story works is you have the call number of a book, title and the call number, and the author of the book. And then it transitions to a, basically a scene where the librarian sort of looks at the kid and relates the stories to what's going on in that kid's life. And then we go to another story and another scene. And it's really, really effective in terms of pacing in this short story. And also it's just really interesting because it communicates that idea of, right, of like how these fictional books really affect people's own lives and how they relate to them. Like you call it escapism, but like, the story is about escapism, but it's almost the the structure of it is almost the inverse, which is using these fantasy stories to dive in deeper into this kid's psychology. Like, the interesting thing is we never see the inside of his head. He never talks that much to the protagonist, never certainly about his emotions. So we only see his emotional state and his feelings through the way he's interacting with these books. So, like, he's using them to escape even though we and a librarian are using them to kind of see closer into him. And I actually should note, the interesting thing about backstory for this is uh, Harrow talks about how the 
the idea that you could tell a story through these call numbers. And obviously, this is not telling the whole story through call numbers, but it's certainly using those call numbers and those stories to separate different aspects of it. That was just one area of it that I really, really enjoyed. The way it handled, like, uh, one of the scenes for me that really stuck out was about halfway through the story when our main character librarian realizes the extent of the boy's problems is when he comes into the library with a social worker and it's not a knock on the social worker, but also she takes him away from the science fiction and fantasy books and says like, well, let's look at something more practical. And those practical books are dealing with his mental health struggles and I think one of the books is called like dealing with depression and something and not to like knock on those books and whether or not they're useful. But one of the main themes in this story is about how sometimes those books and those messages are what people need to get through the struggles of life. But sometimes this escapism and finding these worlds full of aliens and wizards and spaceships and castles is also just as much a medicine, a remedy for people's mental ills than just like straight up reading about it about specifically trying to deal with the problem you're facing versus escaping it like that's the interesting thing about this text is that he gets to get away from his life yes and his like he's a foster kid in a bad situation and you can tell he's in a not a great home and he's trying to get away all the time and the fantasy of this story is the magic of it which is that that he gets to get away and of course in real life you know reading fantasy reading these fictional escapist books like helps you for a moment, helps your mindset perhaps, but doesn't actually get you away from the situation you're in. So it's, it's one of those things that I think, I'm obviously, I think it's very sympathetic and like the book isn't about the dichotomy or the sort of um, contradiction there or the tension there because it's a fantasy novel. Like that's, that's the fantasy story. That's the beauty of the fantasy of it is that it gets to all work out even if perhaps, you know, the critique of this is like, you know, well, it's not realistic. It's not realistic. He couldn't, you know, in real life, you can't go to the magical realm, sadly, as much as we might wish. That's true. But I think this book is making the argument that society is very against the idea of escapism. I think the idea of escapism is something that is very much criticized. Like when people it's, – it's very strange because we – are on one hand very eager to like label something like, oh, this is like an escapist fantasy. You can really throw your whole being into it. But we are also very quick to judge a person if we say you're running away from your problems. You're not dealing with it. Oh, you're locking yourself up in your room and reading these books all day instead of going out there and confronting your problems. And it's a gray zone. I don't think locking yourself up and reading all day to hide away from the world is a purely good or bad decision. But I also think the same for just running headlong in there and trying to just plow your way through your problems. I think this story is serving to counteract that accusation that we shouldn't fantasize about literally escaping into our books, but also that there is power, there is healing that comes from getting lost in stories about another land. Sam? Mm-hmm. I love you, but I think you're totally wrong about Ooh. the assertion we don't value escapism. I think perhaps intellectually we don't. However, have you ever heard of a thing called the metaverse? Oh, no. That's what I'm saying, man. Have you ever heard of Ready Player One, your favorite book of all time? Like, 
No, that's a lie. Don't believe that. Escapism is, in our current society, right, there's a lot of large capital-intensive investment going on into constructing escapism for people. Constructing these parallel worlds that they'll invest themselves in to escape their drudgery of their daily lives and their problems. And certainly, like, I'm not going to rag on this story for how it presents that, but like, yeah, there's certainly a danger to escapism. Like, that's the actually, that's the interesting thing here that I, that you don't get is how, is the danger of these books, which I think you see in other parallel world stories of like, yes, this fantasy world is beautiful, it's tremendous, it's, it's lovely in certain ways, but it's also, there's, there's darkness there, there's danger there. Now for this kid, it seems like the dangers in that world easily counterbalanced by the dangers and the tension of his actual life. Right. But... Do you have anything more to say about escapism, or shall we put a pin in it and move on? I was just going to say, because I'm thinking of it from the perspective of, like, people who get so sucked into their World of Warcraft guild that they're doing this every moment they're not sleeping or working. Or, like, Ready Player One, for instance, which I dislike because of how much it... Ready Player One is, like such uh in this are kind of similar in the way of escaping to a better world but on one hand i think i like it in the story because it's an individual versus the entire like human society just giving up on earth but that's a completely random discussion so i'm ready to put a pin in it here and move on to the next question yeah let's take a look um because we said that the interesting thing is the use of the book titles to break up the story however some of those titles are fictional stories. For example, bah, 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 the first one, which is George J.C., The Runaway Prince, G. Fick Geo, 1994. And some of them are real, such as Dumas Alexandre, The Count of Monte Cristo, F. Yeah. Dumb, 1974. Why? Why have fake and real stories as the books? So when you told me that some of these books were made up for the story i was shocked because i just immediately assumed all of these were real because i i mean i didn't recognize the runaway prince because that's not a, an actually existing story but then later on i saw oh wizards of earth sea i know that one so clearly all of these must be real and i'm not sure why i like the idea of the writing of how it breaks things up but it's almost like i don't know i wish they could have maybe committed to the bit of all of them being real. Hmm. But it also shows, like, the... I feel like it's here to show the expanse of all of the different books that can be found in the fiction section of the library, ranging from The Wizards of Earthsea to The Count of Monte Cristo. Two very different books, but offering stories that can appeal to anyone in a time of stress, if need be. Yeah, I wonder, because... There's an interesting choice that gets made of, um, it would have been interesting to me if all the fantasy stuff was fictional or invented books and all the real stuff was non-invented books, but that's actually not how it works out. It's kind of just a mix of both. I think it seems like Harrow wants to have like a very specific book for certain times and then other times it's more general. I like the the bit where you mentioned your own recognition of like, oh, I know the Wizard of Mercy. Like, I think that's actually what she's going for there because this is a story for people who love books so if you write a story about a library that doesn't mention any books they'd actually know, I guess they probably would be disappointed in you. Or you would just be like Jorge Luis Borges. Do you think that's why Harry Potter is in here? Because that's like at least one book you can count on most people having read? I think so. I think so. I mean, 
I mean, but people have heard of the Count of Monte Cristo as well. Like those are true. Those are two pretty big ones. So I think there's just that recognition goal because none of the um, real ones are that obscure. True. It's not like her personal favorites. Definitely ones that are like I think you're right. Absolutely, the real ones are going for recognition there. But the interesting thing about the books is it's it doesn't just stop with them being mentioned because here, like the books, almost have intentions. They have character. They have desires. They want to be read. They want to be interact with people. There's almost like a um, a desire in them, like a desire for connection in the same way that we human beings are social creatures, that books are social creatures that desire to be read by us. I don't know. I find that really beautiful because I love books. I love smelling them. I love holding them. And just the idea that there's almost a, um, a mutual affection there was very nice. I like library books, especially because they, they have like, you know, the slip covers and everything on them to help them withstand years and years of abuse and physical fatigue i think library books have a different feel than any book that you would buy in a local bookstore for instance so if it's okay with you i'd like to move the conversation then to our main character this librarian who is also wearing two hats one is librarian one pointy black one as a witch we get some insights into what the witch's world is like with not a lot of explanation it's all kept in the background but they seem to be just as uptight as the administrators in the library she works for. I really loved her as a main character because it's very cool to see a proactive voice as our protagonist, who not only has it out to help this boy who's in trouble, but also one who like deeply sympathizes him for some things that happened earlier in her life as well. I think you're absolutely right. I want to talk more before we talk about like her interactions with him. I, I'd really like to talk about like the book perspective, right? Her two hats, right? Her tension there, the tension between yes. the fact that she's both, a, she is training as both a librarian and as a witch. And there's this interesting, it's almost like a comparison and a con- compare contrast. Cause like, it seems like there's a lot of parallels there in terms of what those roles are, what they're supposed to do in terms of the services they provide to people. And also there's like a level of tension there because obviously the library sciences, it's a social science. It's more analytical. It's more abstract, more focused on sort of analysis and research. Whereas her sort of witchcraft, it's very sort of ethereal. It's very uh, focused on sort of emotion and divining and these sort of uh, not abstract, but like spiritual versus analytical. It's interesting because it's like a spiritual way of thinking and an analytical way of thinking that are constantly converging mm-hmm. on the same actual actions and processes. I just found that really, really cool. As somebody who has admiration for both witches and librarians, it was cool seeing somebody who is both. Yeah, it's very neat to see someone dealing with that double life structure. You know, in many ways, I think it actually almost harkens back to the classic superhero secret identity. Clark Kent is Superman, but also has to do his job at the Daily, um, almost said the Daily Bugle. That's Spider-Man who is doing his job at the Daily Bugle while slinging around New York City. And Clark Kent is reporting for the Daily Planet. That was a really cool way to see them do it. And actually, and at the end, how she basically rejects both worlds by her slowly loosening the rules that the library puts on her by giving the boy books that her very stingy... Um, administrators don't want to have in their library as we find out and then the book at the end which she basically says that like i could be removed from witching world entirely if they find out that i gave this book to this non-witch and that he used it for this purpose 
So I really like how these are two different worlds on the surface, but we see that there's this same, I'm not sure what to call it, administrative rot that she decides to just completely subvert at the end for a good cause. Yeah. I want to give a quote, but then we can move on. Sure. Here's the quote where she specifically draws this parallel, which I really enjoyed. I do my best to give people the books they need most. In grad school, they called it ensuring readers have access to text materials that are engaging and emotionally rewarding. And in my other kind of schooling, they called it divining the unfilled spaces in their souls and filling them with stories and starshine. But it comes to the same thing. That idea of it comes to the same thing, right? There is this parallel. These two tracks of thinking that are both leading her to a decision, it violates the rules of both sides, but fulfills their overarching or their underlying desires. Because that's the interesting thing here is that she has these magic books. She has these magic books that nobody gets to read. There are certain books that all these places have restricted, powerful books, tomes of magic that they're not allowed to give out. And so I was thinking to myself, like, what's the point of it? What's the point? Where are these coming from? Why do these books exist if folks aren't allowed to read them? What do you think there, Sam? There's two things that pop into my mind with that. The first is, like, typical hoarding of power. You know, it's easier these days because we have such wonderful inventions like the printing press. But before then, when a copy of something was a painstaking work that would take hours upon hours, knowledge was limited. And libraries were almost in many ways like a bank that could have restricted sections that keep information out of people's hands simply because whoever was in charge decided this is information that we do not want getting out into the world. I think that was an interesting reflection on that of sort of how libraries, certainly not today, but in the past could almost be a tool to keep people away from certain knowledge. And on the other hand, of course, which is unfortunately becoming more of a problem today, even more than it was in 2019, is the opposite where we see instead of books being held on to like, to prevent anyone else from seeing them, books being expunged entirely throughout different parts of the U.S. We have seen a record number of books primarily dealing with LGBTQ issues and characters that are being expunged from public and school libraries because of just homophobia and transphobia from state legislators. So it just made me think of two different ways that libraries have, have been hijacked by people trying to keep knowledge away from those who could really use that for, um, for learning or even just to feel better about themselves. There's an interesting tension in libraries where they're both clearly public institutions and sources of public authority, and yet there's elements of them that can certainly be extremely subversive in terms of the stuff they're doing. Like notably, I mean, obviously we have, we have book bannings in America today, but I'm just thinking about there was this the libraries of like sexual science in Weimar Germany yep. basically getting completely destroyed by the Nazis because they were seen as like, even though this was really like an academic public institution, it's harboring all these subversive ideas in it. And it's actually letting, giving people access to these subversive ideas and they're using them to question authority. And it's this interesting tension in how public libraries function as both sort of cultural centers, as sources of public spaces for people to interact with and kind of do things, and also sources of 
texts and content that is perhaps subversive. Not surprising to me that people constantly want to censor and ban libraries. I mean, frankly, the bottom line is libraries are important. Mm -hmm. They're sources not just of power, but of knowledge and of community spaces that are really key and are really under attack these days. We'll certainly have a call to action and a specific donation link at the end of this podcast for if we want to give, if, if folks want to give money to some of these charities that are trying to support libraries and defending these attempts to ban books and roll back these sort of things. But also say like, hey, pay attention to what's going on in your own community. Like your public library might offer services that you don't take advantage of. Yep. It might have books that you really want to read. And it might have openings in terms of volunteer work and in terms of working on the library board that you might want to run for if you want to have a say in what gets in these libraries and what gets banned from them. Uh, now, let me, <clears throat> let me get off my, my political stance there and we can get back to the story and talk about something apolitical like... It's setting. It's setting, yeah, it's community. What kind of community are we in here, Jack? What, uh, what fine part of the U.S. Are, does this story take place in? Actually, does she say explicitly that's in Kentucky? I'm Ulysses County. Is that a real place or? Uh, let me see. I mean, 100% there's a place in Kentucky called Ulysses County. I'm going to bet you. Let's see. Ulysses County, Kentucky is it. Yeah, it's real. The city. Is, right. Well, there's actually, there's not a, there's not a Ulysses County. There's a unincorporated community located in Lawrence County, Kentucky, United States. But Ulysses, I mean, come on. Like Ulysses S. Grant, I'd name, I'd name my son after him. But, and we all should. We all should Why would it be in sense. Kentucky, though? He didn't have anything to do with Kentucky. If you're a union man, you should name your town. You should name your son. You should name your whatever you need to name after a man like Grant. But we're not talking about Ulysses S. Grant now. We're talking about this community because it's something we didn't mention, but it's really important and key to the story. Because, Sam, you mentioned that these two characters have a similar backstory. They never talk about that. They never really talk at all. Yep. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of this story. They have these similar backstories, but they never share them. Why? Well, because the main character is a white woman, and the kid she's trying to help is black. And so there's this real difference there, and there's a real distrust from him to her. And that's one of the things that I found most affecting and most convincing about this story was, how do you help somebody who doesn't want to be helped by you, who you can't really connect to? And so all the support she gives him is really indirect. It's all about putting tools in his path for him to take and for him to use to help himself. All these books, she doesn't give him these books. She just sets up these books so he will find them because she knows she has that sort of librarian witch sixth sense of the books that he really wants and he really needs. And frankly, that indirectness, the fact that I think, I think they have one conversation at the very beginning and they never talk again is... Maybe my favorite part of this book. And what I think is also important is where our main character is coming from, because we find out earlier when she's seen the situation with the boy, this is not the first time she has had a conflict of faith when it comes to helping someone with her magical powers. Around a little over halfway through the story, we find a memory of her where uh, another high school girl is coming through the library. And she notices she begins checking out books dealing with pregnancy. And she does her part. She mentions how she slid uh, Planned Parenthood pamphlets into her bag. But what she's really upset about is the fact that she has a witch's tome that basically, I guess, could have provided a magical abortion, which 
also would have been much less complicated than a real abortion, even in Kentucky in 2019, before the end of Roe v. Wade, like today. But she didn't do that because of the rules in place by whatever the magical society is. And the girl ends up committing suicide. And this is a memory that has haunted her for, I think it's for the last five years. And knowing that that was the mistake, that she could have done something and didn't, is what makes it so that she sees this boy in trouble, how his life, his family situation, whatever it is, we don't get a fully clear idea, but it is clearly spiraling towards a point where she recognizes the patterns that she saw in this girl as well, and she is determined to not let that ending repeat itself as well. So that establishing moment, as well as just showing how much of this area is killing the youth and the just awfulness of how this community is aware of all these things, but yet constantly putting guardrails to stop people from getting the help they need, both from her librarian self and on the wizarding side as well. I definitely want to talk about the girls thing because there's a specific detail that I really thought was important in terms Mm -hmm. of that, the community. But before that, I want to talk more about her specifically because the interesting thing about this character is that she gives up everything. Like, the yes. implication at the end is that she's going to lose her position in the, the, the witches. Like, she's going to be exiled from this community that she was sort of trained in, she was part of. And she's going to lose every opportunity she has to help other people. Like, the interesting thing about this book is, like, I'm assuming it takes place over a few weeks, maybe a few months. Because it's kind of, it starts in the summer and it ends in the start of school like school's begun so it's been at least a month or so and we only see like basically five minutes of a few different days of her life so most of her time we don't see right she spends most of her day i'm sure helping other people connecting them with these books they need and she throws that away she sacrifices her power her position her capacity to support other people in order to help this one kid and I think that bit of her backstory where she failed to save this one person is so important for that because it's like, yeah, that that failure is what makes her willing to give up everything. Give up everything to save this person. And the kid has no idea. Yes. He will never, he does not know, he will never know that she, what she gave up to help him because that's not what it's about, right? It's not about getting the credit. It's not about being recognized. It's about doing the right thing even when everyone tells you that it's wrong. Actually, I believe he does know what she did. I think that's doubting the boy's observational skills. We see, from the librarian's point of view, that time and time again, she's encouraging people to check out certain books, slipping them maybe an extra volume of something. In this girl's case, the Planned Parenthood pamphlets. I think this boy has to at least be somewhat aware of, you know, of like, oh, the librarian lady, she's always recommending me great books to read in the back of his mind. I feel like after he ends up in wherever it is he is now in a better place, that he's like, ah, she did this, she played a role, okay. Huh, I'm, that's interesting because the reason I didn't think that was because I don't think she's actually recommending these books to him. I was assuming that she was basically putting them in his path so he would encounter them. Okay, so she, like, you think she was being a little more sly about it? Yeah, because that's what she does with the final book. Sure. And so my assumption is... Yeah, it's interesting, because she says she sends him the books or she gives him the books. So I was like, I don't know. Because I, I assumed that... 
he wasn't asking her, just because we never see the dialogue. But it's vague enough that I think it works either way. I think it's interesting. I hope he see. I hope he knows. But I. That's not how I read it. But I. My reading sadder, but I don't know. I think I like yours a little well, bit. That's because you like sad stories. That's true. All things should be sad. <laughs> Life sucks, then you die. I I got to be the light side here. I like to think there's a beautiful moment where he recognizes and reflects. So Let's that... talk a bit. Oh yeah, sorry. No, you can do the transition. No, I didn't have anything to say. I mean, you never do. Mm. Ew. Mm. Moving on from the, the, the woman and Boyshard Help to the overall community, because I think it's really important what this library is. Yep. The thing this library is, it's a public space where he can actually exist, and he's free to be there, which is really important because actually the way we're introduced to him is that he's getting nasty looks from the other patrons because he's just chilling, reading books, basically because he's reading books while black, while being a black adolescent. He's getting these nasty looks from other patrons who are suspicious of him. And yet, this is a place where he can be comfortable. In fact, he actually stays overnight at one point, and she basically pretends not to see that he's snuck in and, and stayed overnight, because this, for him, is a safe space, a safe public space. And it's really notable to me, the detail that they give about this community, which is that uh, there used to be a public pool in this community where he could have hung out, and he could have spent time and been himself. But then... When it was integrated, they filled it up. They filled it in. So no one could use it. And presumably there are private pools instead that he doesn't have access to because he's not part of that social class and i think that's a really important thing to note is like this library is not just a repository of books right it's not just like a a thing where you order online you pick up your books no it's a place where you can just exist and be comfortable in your own skin without being thrown out or judged and like the idea that these are public spheres are public spaces is really really important to this book I mean, this book's great. Like, it's really about all these different ways that libraries and, and other places like them serve communities, how they can and how they should serve communities. It's important for me, too, because I think about my own public library near me, which it's fortunate enough for me is about a five-minute walk from my residence. And it provides not just a place for me to pick up books for free, but it's also a place where I can use a computer or I can just hang out. I go there often to just sit down and work on my laptop. And it's utterly bizarre to me these days that we hear a lot of outcrying from people about how, you know, Americans are lacking a third space, you know, that place where we can exist and be ourselves and spend time outside of home and work. And for a lot of people, it could be like a community pool. Or a public library um, for decades, it was traditionally like a church or some sort of religious institutions. But all we're doing in this book, as you mentioned, they filled the pool up with cement. And then they're chastising and mocking this person for enjoying one of the few public resources left in this community. What else is he going to do? He's, he's a student. like He doesn't and frankly shouldn't have a full-time job. And we get the sense that his family life is not healthy. So it just shows how important these places are to exist outside of work and home or school. And how, unfortunately, so many forces are coming to tear them down. This is the part where I think you could mention that awful Forbes article from a couple of years ago where some pack mentioned, like, we should remove all public libraries and just have buildings funded by Amazon. 
I'm not even going to bother linking that story because it doesn't deserve a click. But just public libraries are good. They're full of great resources, and we should all be supporting them for all the great and small reasons. For as small as you should be able to get books you want for free as part of a community, or you're someone who just needs a place to escape from everything like this boy in the story. And I think it's even more important in terms of having that public space, having that capacity for impoverished or otherwise disadvantaged communities because right like frankly you might not have a lot of that stuff there's a lot if there lacks private investment if you lack a lot of these sort of stable facilities there like maybe the library is the thing you have and frankly maybe it's going downhill because there's not enough property taxes and there's not enough funding for it like i'm just looking at and it's it's not just true of of libraries of course true of schools and other stuff all these things that are relying on local subsidies like there is a real tension there in terms of these public spaces that are so valuable and yet the people who probably eat them the most, people who probably have the smallest personal libraries, let's say, might not have access to the highest value ones in terms of public libraries and school libraries. Like I'm just looking right now at how she talks about race. I'm looking at some statistics from New Jersey, where I'm from, like local property taxes in majority white districts uh, are about... per, I believe it's $12,000 per pupil or per person. Whereas black and Hispanic communities are less than half that. So you're talking about a budget that's half of what it is in these other communities because of just the amount of value per pupil in terms of uh, that it's able to provide. And I can certainly see that in my own, I teach at a school that's majority black and has extremely tight budget constraints in, in an inner city. And we don't have a library in my school. And it's something that bums me out every day is that we have no public library. We have some shelves. We have some shelves in a common area that you can pull books from if you want, but there's no facilities there. Versus the school that you and I went to in our little town we grew up in that has really high property values, that is majority white, had a huge, enormous, gorgeous school library. And it just, it's the inequity of it that bums me out. There's the lack of resources that's the problem. But another thing that is highlighted in this story is that, unfortunately, sometimes you can get stuck within this situation or both of administrators who are against the ideas of public libraries as well. At one point in the story, the librarian mentions that every year she puts forward a list of books that she thinks the library should buy to have in the collection and circulation, and that the head guy is a Baptist minister who is often very quick to knock down any of her recommendations that maybe go against his personal, I'm going to assume, evangelical beliefs. And the way certain genres and books are thought of, I mean, we've already mentioned before all of the queer books that are being challenged across the U.S. for the audacity of having queer characters, but also even just like casual throwaway line about how Kids who spend too much time in the graphic novel section should be reported. And yeah, for whatever reason, this bizarre assumption that graphic novels are not quote-unquote real books and that the delinquents who spend time reading them have to be like kept an eye on by school administrators. It bumps me out that it, in the same way that you do, that thing that the story highlights is not only is it a lack of resources, but sometimes you get people in charge who are just so against the, the ideals of what a library should be that even if it had all the money in the world, it can't fulfill its own purpose because of self-sabotage. 
I think that's absolutely right. And that's why it's actually very important for you, dear listeners, to pay attention to who is in charge of your local library and yes. what they're doing. Because hopefully they're good people, but frankly, they might not be. Yep. But I wanted to offer a quote to kind of pin down this, move on from our discussion of the community in this text uh, from the author, where she says, it's made me very aware of race in a very specific way. It's true of the entire country and most of the developed West, but the problem of the color line is at the poisoned, twisted heart of us. Every good thing I love about the South is tainted by it, even partially created by it. It's, well, this isn't really the place, but just in terms of this particular story, know that Kentucky schools and social services are radically, measurably failing black kids. Only about 8% of the state is African American. Almost half the kids in group homes, meaning not placed in foster homes, are black. So this whole story is about these inequities and the very limited way one person tries to correct them, which really is that she helps one person. She doesn't solve the problem. She doesn't really fix anything. She just helps one person. And often that's all you can do. Yeah, it's really great to see like the author and how she took these thoughts and realizations and put them all into text like this. That is a great awakening for anyone who might not have been just aware of how important these issues are to millions of people across the world and how vital libraries are to local community. So as Jack has said before, we're going to have a call to action at the end of this. And then please, when that local community vote comes around for school administrator, anyone in the town council, and make sure these people are ones that you would trust with the freedom of information that they're not going to be holding back resources from one of the few remaining public institutions that you can find in almost every town in the U.S. that provides free access to so many good resources for a community. It's critical these days. Do we have any other discussion topics or questions to ask or are we ready to wind down this story? One last thing, actually, is, and this kind of ties into what we've been talking about, but I want to highlight how she also touches upon late fees. There's been a, a lot of news lately, not lately, over the last couple of years of various libraries getting rid of late fees. And when it comes to late fees, I don't think many of us really think about it. I've always been really good with returning my books on time. And if we did have any late fees, you know, it's usually a quarter or something. And fortunately, I've been in a place where if I did, if my book was overdue by a day or two, I could pay that pretty easily. But one of the things this book highlights is these books are so important to this boy, and he holds on to them for a while, often when they're past due. And that money can add up fast. At one point, it mentions that he owes $4.50 for a book. That might not seem like a lot of money, but I'm sure to him, where he's not working and who knows what his family situation is, he might not know how to get that. We live in a freaking country where kids have school lunch debt. So I think this book also showed that there might be people who say like, oh, if we get rid of late fees, then how are we going to teach kids that their actions have consequences if they don't follow the rules? But I think it's an outdated practice that I'm sure we can find a million other ways if libraries are really relying on that money to make up for it. Did you have any thoughts on that, Jack? Thinking about fees, right? Who does that actually punish? Who actually cares about fees? Well, if it's if you got enough money in your pocket, those late fees don't matter to you at all. Versus if you are not somebody who has a lot of who has any disposable income really, where the library is something you're relying on because you can't afford other 
access to knowledge, like that's going to hurt you the most. And I don't think we should implement policies that are most punishing to the people who can least deal with them. To quickly remind everyone about the great line from the 1997 video game Final Fantasy Tactics, if the penalty for a crime is a fine, then that law only exists for the lower class. Let's do some quotes from the actual story, though, if that's all right. That would be appropriate, yes. I know you're a big FF head, but sadly, I don't know if all are. This is not a podcast about Final Fantasy. I'm sure there's like literally a dozen of them at least. I've never finished a Final Fantasy game, so. Yeah, don't lie. I know you've played Final Fantasy. Didn't you play Three Houses? That's Fire Emblem. How dare you mix those two up? Is that a different series? One's called Final Fantasy, one's called Fire Emblem. FF, man. Emblem starts with an E. Yeah, shut up. You need to go to a library and review your alphabet. <clears throat> My favorite quote is this bit where it's really the first time the witch protagonist has used her sort of magical analysis to really get a read on this kid and try to figure out what he's all about, what he's focused on. And here's what she says. I sat at the circulation desk, running returns beneath the blinky red scanner light, and breathed him in. I was expecting something like generic Arthurian retelling, or maybe teenage romance with sword fighting. But instead I found a howling, clamoring mess of need. He smelled of a thousand secret worlds, of rabbit holes and hidden doorways and platforms nine and three quarters, of Wonderland and Oz and Narnia, of any place but here. He smelled of yearning. God save me from the yearners, the insatiable, the inconsolable, the ones who chafe and claw against the edges of the world. No book can save them. That's a lie. There are books potent enough to save any mortal soul. Books of witchery, augury, alchemy. Books with wandwood in their spines and moon dust on their pages. Books older than stones and wily as dragons. We give people the books they need most. Except when we don't. Fantastic. The writing in this story is good, actually. <laughs> bold claim we didn't say that like we didn't actually say that in our discussion of it the writing of this story it's very good writing alex ehero knows how to put prose together in a way that is effective seconded what's your quote to continue these trends i'd like to say my own quote this is basically she realizes the boys headed down a bad path near the end and she knows she can help them but the rules of the witching world are still holding her back mentally from giving him the tools he need. So this is where I'm going to begin. But there was nothing I could do except wait and hope. Our volunteers were doing the weekly movie showing in media room number two, so I was stuck reshelving. It wasn't until I was actually in the FDAC through FEN aisle holding our dog-eared copy of The Count of Monte Cristo in my hand that I realized Edmond Dante was absolutely 100% full of shit. If Edmond had taken his own advice, he would have sat in his jail cell waiting and hoping for 40 years while the Count de Morcif and Villefort and the rest of them stayed rich and happy. The real moral of the Count of Monte Cristo was surely something more like, if you screw someone over, be prepared for a vengeful mastermind to fuck up your life 20 years later. Or maybe it was, if you want justice and goodness to prevail in this world, you have to fight for it tooth and nail. 
and it will be hard and costly and probably illegal, you will have to break the rules. I mean, folks, where's the lie? Mm-hmm. And then she breaks the law and gives that boy a book. Well, not just break the law. She breaks the witch rules. Two different things. She breaks the witch law. Yeah. I mean, which is, you can't break the law of this. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to get it. I'm, the difference just between a, laws and regulations and rules doesn't matter. But Yes, also, you, you know all about witching law. That's what you studied. Ooh, witchy woman. That's what I was thinking about as you were talking for some reason. So, with our story discussion concluded, we're going to move over to one of my favorite parts, which is recommending to all of you great listeners some related um, media that you might be interested in if you enjoyed the story. But Jack and I talked about it before, and we decided that we are going to mix it up a little bit for this first episode, simply because this story was all about this boy finding really important books that hit him at just the right time in life. So Jack and I both thought about a story that came into our lives at just the perfect moment when we needed it the most. So Jack, what do you have to share with everyone? I'm going to share a book that really affected me when I was younger, when I was a boy. It was Percy Jackson, the Olympian series by Rick Reardon, which I read in starting in about fourth or fifth grade, I believe, they were coming out. And those of you who don't know, that's a series of books about a kid who's a demigod. His name's Percy. He deals with like the Greek gods and comfort within that. But the reason it hit me in such a way was because Rick Reardon wrote this story for his son. His son is uh, dyslexic, has ADHD, so Percy has dyslexia and ADHD. And in fact, the story argues that those things that society perceives as flaws or things wrong with him are actually virtues and that he's just in a situation he's ill-suited for. And as a kid who had ADHD, who had autism or has both those things and whose brain didn't work right according to other people i knew in terms of how their brains work it was really comforting for me to say see this place where hey sure this kid percy he doesn't really have the sort of the brain that everybody wants he doesn't have the sort of he doesn't perform social expectations in terms of his the way he thinks the way he behaves and yet he still has value and yet his actual distance his his difference is it's actually itself a virtue and i just i needed that at the time as when i was a kid and aware of when i was becoming aware of myself as different from everyone else that i needed somebody to tell me that it was okay so i will say that first percy jackson series by rick Riordan. honestly the sequel series is probably better but that's not the series that hit me at the right time the original series is the one that hit me at that perfect time mm. i am going to share the Tatame Galaxy, an anime by the studio Madhouse and directed by Masaka Yuasa. You may recognize his work. He has a very unique style that is instantly recognizable. He's done a ton of great work, such as uh, the film The Night is Short, Walk On Girl, Keep Your Hands Off Izuken from 2020, which is fantastic, Japan Sinks, Devilman Crybaby, Ping Pong, the animation as well. This is a series about a third-year college student who, in the opening of the first episode, walks into a ramen joint in the middle of the woods and is basically fuming over the fact that he feels like something we don't know about on campus. He has completely ruined his college life, has been socially ostracized and run out, and now the perfect life that he dreamed for himself is all over. But turns out that 
the other patron at the ramen place is a Shinto god who overhears his story and sends him back to his first day of college. And each episode is this student basically trying to use the loop to make the perfect college life for himself. And because it resets each episode, you can kind of imagine that things always go wrong in the 22 minutes of each episode. Not to spoil how it ends, but I watched this series right at the beginning of my junior year of college after a very difficult sophomore year where I felt like things were going not as I had planned. And this show really pushed me to do the things I needed to do to make the life for myself that I wanted. And junior and senior year ended up being the best years of my life so far. Trying to recreate that energy with me all the time and a really amazing show for anyone who's just feeling like they're in a little bit stuck in life at the moment. Okay, folks, that's about it with us. We'll come back to the story when we do episode 11 on our ranking episode of all these different short stories against each other. But for now, we're leaving this story behind. And what are we going to read next, Sam? So we're still going to be remaining in the 21st century, but right at the turn of the millennium, because in our next episode, we will be moving back 19 years to read the winner of the 2000 Short Story Award, which will be Michael Swanwick's Scherzo with Tyrannosaur. And I believe we're going to be seeing Mr. Swanwick many times on this show. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And if anyone is interested in finding us online, you can find me streaming at twitch.tv slash Johnson. Where can people find you, Jack? They can't. If you want to find me, don't. Elusive as always. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode. We're so happy to have you along for the journey. See you next time. Be good. Thank you for listening to Every Hugo Ever. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review on a podcasting app of your choice, wherever you listen to it. Make that rating as high as possible, maybe seven stars. You can also support us on Ko-Fi through a link in the episode description. Follow us on Twitter at Every Hugo Ever for show updates and other fun. Send us questions, comments, and your own reviews of our reviews at everyhugoever at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with the Hugo Awards or with WorldCon. See you next time. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.